the University of Johannesburg. The future reimagined. Hello, thank you for downloading this edition of Innovative Research at the University of Johannesburg. Welcome to this edition of Innovative Research at UJ, which is hosted by the UJ Library. My name is Professor Maria Fromov, and I am the Executive Director of the Library at the University of Johannesburg and the host of this series of podcasts. Today, I am delighted to welcome Prof. Kat Yassim, who is from the Department of Education at the University of Johannesburg. She has been doing some remarkable research into school children and the effect of COVID on their lives and their learning. Prof. Kat, welcome. Thank you, Maria. I'm so happy to be um, on this podcast with you. Super, thank you. I'm going to start by asking a question that I think is on the forefront of many people's minds. School-going children meet many different milestones. And the first year of school, the first year of high school, the last year of your primary education, all of these are formative moments. And so my question to you is how have these formative moments been affected by COVID in the lives of our learners in South Africa? Um, So, Maria, I think that's a very important question to ask, particularly in a country like South Africa, where inequality is pervasive. So we're literally looking at a divide between uh, people who or children who have got access to all the facilities that make uh, an uninterrupted teaching and learning process occur no matter the situation. COVID, of course, catapulted for them an online environment, Uh, but for most of them, uh, schools had already started that digital um, conversation, and so a lot of them uh, were not entirely prepared, I would say, but uh, there was a lot that could actually be already um, capitalized on that had been put into place previously. In addition for those children, uh, their parents were also housebound and they made amazing partners that the school could draw on in terms of uh, enabling teaching and learning to continue. So I would say that in terms of uh, children who have access to digital devices, uh, internet connectivity and other resources, for them, uh, the school environment changed from a face-to-face encounter to one that was predominantly online. But I think in that particular case, uh, it was mostly then uh, teacher-parent partnerships that became the fulcrum for success, as well as teachers then pedagogically having to equip themselves online. But for the vast majority of children in South Africa, uh, you know, with an education system for them, uh, COVID or no COVID, that's already perpetually in crisis, Uh, the situation was much more dire. Um, As you would know, uh, the vast majority of our kids that find themselves um, in in situations like that uh, not only have um, an issue with the digital divide, but they also have home environments that are not really conducive to teaching and learning, much less the entire conundrum of uh, communication with parents to ensure that they teaching and learning uh, went through uninterrupted. I would say that in the early days of COVID, for them, uh, the situation was almost um, 
you know, uncertain as uh, the various schools, uh, the principals, the teachers, the Department of Education then started to um, contemplate on how to put things in place. Now, I work with uh, 10 schools in the province of Limpopo, and the schools that I work with are, from, uh, are predominantly in a more rural setting or township setting, and the kids come from the latter uh, kind of uh, socioeconomic environment. And so for those schools, uh, the settling in process was uh, quite dire. Uh, the cell phone was probably the most um, available form of communication. And so um, principals had to then start to use that as a primary device in which to then start organizing remotely, uh, you know, things with the school community in terms of the teachers and the SMT and the SGB and so forth to get uh, structures put into place that would then um, support children the best that they could. So the early days, I think, was quite chaotic. But then as the lockdown progressed uh, and structures were slowly put into place, um, things became um, a little bit easier, but still there would continue to be a struggle for those kids to actually learn from home. However, in one of the schools that I worked with, um, they had already set up a Facebook page. And they found that that particular Facebook page that they had set up was the main conduit of conversation with the parent community. And what would happen is that parents who had access to a device as well as uh, to uh, the social media platform would then uh, take whatever information was being provided by the school. And some of those things would be more uh, along the lines of an organizational process. Uh, other things would be uh, more learning materials that could be shared um, and, and, and ways in which to pick up physical learning materials from spaza shops and other arrangements that the schools had made. Um, and then those parents who had access would then communicate with other parents in the communities that did not have access. So there was this Ubuntu that just became alive to support the children uh, you know, through the process. However, if you were to talk to most of the teachers and to the principals of these schools and look back on those early days, I think most of them would actually say uh, that they fear that the kind of curriculum coverage, the kind of skills development that they would have otherwise achieved under normal conditions probably did not exactly happen for those children. So, so there was a lot of learning on, on how to perhaps, um, you know, get things going. And so should we have, for example, another lockdown, I think people, you know, would be a little bit better prepared. I'm not saying ideal, but a little bit better prepared uh, compared to March last year. So in a sense, we have really um, entered into a transformational space with such uh, an exponential sense of learning uh, that I don't think would have been possible um, had COVID not happened. So in a sense, COVID brought challenge, but it also, for a lot of these schools, brought opportunities to experiment, to innovate, to try new things. And like I say, this whole concept of Ubuntu that just exploded through the seams of the community. So the police force, social workers, the spaza shops, uh, parents who had maybe access to those Facebook pages and so forth, all bonded together. Um, as a force 
to be able to continue the teaching and learning process for the children the best that they could. Of course, many of the children also fell through the cracks because they don't have parents or a support system at home that's conducive. And this is where the police and the social services kind of filtered in, into place. In one of my schools, uh, the principal and the teachers went through a hectic exercise of profiling every single child into three categories. The green category, which was a child who was relatively okay, could be communicated with through parents, had certain amount of access uh, you know, through their uh, communities and so forth. The amber group was a group uh, that had one or two little issues. And then you had the red group where you know, everybody then bonded together, including the social services, police, and all kinds of other people uh, to, to support those children. So across the board, different schools took on the project of dealing with the pandemic and, and dealing with the idea that uh, the children should not lose the year. There was this whole you know, push and drive toward, we don't want the kids to lose the year. And, 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 and so these innovations then surfaced through that process. This all sounds absolutely fascinating and so interesting to hear more about the rural setting because in so much of the media, the focus has been more on urban settings. From the way that you have been describing these interactions, was there a noticeable engagement of parents with their children's learning, um, perhaps more so than has been in previous years? So I think in the, in the places, um, you know, where parents have very good relationships with schools, they have a stable home structure, you know, children have got, um, you know, access as well as support from their parents. In those particular cases, I think you would hear across the board that parents were, you know, finally appreciated what teachers do and the work of a teacher because they were suddenly now a little bit more involved in the learning of their children. But at the same time, the online environment also required, uh, you know, for another means by which children could socially connect with one another and so forth. So there's, there's all of those, um, you know, issues that have been discussed at, uh, you know, in, in, in quite a lot of uh, breadth in the media and so forth. But in a, in a rural setting, uh, Maria, the issue, you know, for parents is not only the learning of their children, and for the children, it's not only the learning itself, it's also a matter of survival. So for them, the task was not that much easier, uh, where a lot of the parents were laid off or couldn't get to work uh, or couldn't uh, get the resources for survival. And so one of the things that um, our schools do is they have feeding schemes in these particular communities. And so one big issue that cropped up for these schools was the fact that um, they could no longer, uh, you know, uh, provide children with those meals uh, that they regularly would have, um, you know, under regular circumstances. So um, a lot of the schools have, in that particular situation, took on uh, what is called a Maslow before Bloom approach. So Maslow, um, you know, um, has is, is um, a researcher who has written about what would be the basic human needs. Uh, that somebody would have an, as an absolute requirement before you could actually kick into the cognitive. And obviously, um, having food, having shelter, having clothing 
are all basic human needs that can't be negated. You can't expect a child to learn on a hungry stomach. So before we go into the cognition, which is more the bloom idea, you have to uh, take care of, um, of some of the basic needs um, that, that Maslow has described, and, and that just actually makes common sense. So a lot of the schools extended their food gardens. Um, you know, they already had existing food gardens, which uh, were used to supplement the Department of Education provisions and the community provisions that they, um, that they get in order to provide these feeding schemes. And so what happened in a couple of the schools that I work with is that they continued with preparing the food, but then creating these takeaway polystyrene sort of containers in which they could then um, adequately uh, put in a place where people could pick up or they could adequately deliver that food uh, because a lot of the children sort of depended on that food. So for, so for those kids, it was a little bit more difficult with some of the more basic requirements of survival was something that they required. But then uh, what ended up happening is that in this particular case, the digital uh, conversation around teaching and learning was a little bit harder for them. So cell phone technology, particularly WhatsApp, and some ingenious ways of using WhatsApp. So an Afrikaans teacher, for example, recorded all of the stories as voice notes, which were then made available um, through the WhatsApp medium. Uh, for oh, children. so ingenious. Mm, to actually access. So in a sense, they could listen to the teacher and follow on with the book, but then be able to pick up the pronunciation. And then obviously, once you've read the book, the teacher had a conversation on a voice note um, around, you know, what the plot is or whatever it was. So there was that kind of innovation through the WhatsApp that took place little video clips that were shared, short little video clips that were shared. And then, of course, in these areas, the television and the radio forum became the next point of departure for those teachers. So the radio was used quite extensively. And actually, if you did a survey of these communities, uh, a lot of people do access the radio, even if they do not have a television. So the radio service uh, was used as a way of broadcasting uh, you know, some of the programs that would be um, useful for children. So when you talk about, uh, you know, media, um, the media, you know, went beyond the call of duty in terms of just propagating ordinary news and ordinary events towards having school-based programs uh, that could then support the children. So there were various activities that actually, you know, was put into place uh, in order to enable learning and teaching and learning to happen. Uh, but as I say, uh, if you were to talk to many of the teachers, I think there is a uh, sense uh, that, that maybe, you know, as much as they try to do the best that they could, that it was probably not enough. However, there's another debate that is ensuing, and I'm following this debate with a lot of earnest. So when children don't do um, formal you know, school activities that are prescribed by the curriculum, um, does it mean that they're not learning? And this is a debate happening worldwide. Because right now, if I were to go to any child, even in those rural areas, and ask them what do they know about COVID, they'd be able to tell me a whole host of information from the social sciences to mathematics to, um, you know, uh, to, to help 
you know, sciencey kind of health issues, they picked up so much from the whole event of COVID itself and from the conversations around them and from the experiences that they had. That the question then, you know, in my mind right now is how do we turn this around? How do we use life experiences as learning and not discount it as a year lost? How do we, how do we bring that as real learning? And what would be the way in which we could structure pedagogically what we do? so that we bring in those conversations that actually make sense right now. That's a conversation that needs to be had. That's such an interesting question. Um, Prof. Kat, we could be chatting to you for the next hour. I'm really sorry we've come to the end of our time together. I hope that perhaps you'll be able to do another podcast with us and tell us a little bit more about this last idea how we take the everyday experience and really integrate that into the teaching and learning project. Thank you so much to my um, guest today, Professor Kat Yassim. And thank you to all of you for listening to our podcast. We look forward to sharing the next podcast with you next week. Stay well and be safe. The University of Johannesburg. The future reimagined.